Today we get to talk about hope, trust, and confidence in the Lord. A confidence that's not built on our own skill, it's not built on our own personality, it's not built on our own accomplishments or works, it's built on Him. And this kind of hope, the Bible tells us, is a hope that does not disappoint. It's a confidence that helps us follow after Him and trust that He is who He says He is, that He does what He says He does, and when we trust in Him, is when we obey Him, is when we follow Him. It's hard to obey somebody that you do not trust, even in our works, in our jobs, uh, when we are on a, uh, a, a task that we don't really trust the person giving it. It's hard to sometimes follow and see how this is going to make sense. But when we trust that person, we're more willing to go with it. We're more willing to follow after their direction. Today we're going to look at what that looks like and have our, and hopefully as we look at the scripture, we've been doing this series called the Awakened Series. We've been going through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're in 2nd Corinthians now. We've been doing this series for about 30 weeks now. That's kind of crazy, uh, of the time that we've been spending and looking at this, uh, these letters to the church at Corinth. But in them, I, I, I know that in my own life studying this, I, the confidence that I've, I've have in the Lord is so much stronger than it once was. Because I am amazed when I read through these letters and think, wow, God, you love the church at Corinth. You love them. And your heart was for them to have their eyes opened to you. That, that you were not forgetting them. You were not abandoning them. That you were faithful to them. And you were walking through them. And this is a church that it's in pretty poor shape. We've talked about some serious issues that were going on in the church at Corinth. And so here's where the confidence rises. God, if you're loving towards a church and towards leadership and towards people that have distanced and just been distracted from you and they've, they've kind of closed their eyes in slumber and become apathetic to you and yet you love them enough to wake them up and to alert them about how good you are, then I have no reason to fear. Not because my life is perfect, but I'm, it reminds me that God does not fail and He does not give up on those He loves. And that is good news for us. It helps build confidence in our life. And the Apostle Paul, who founded this church, is writing to them, and he's writing this, we call it 2 Corinthians. We talked about this last week. It's actually probably the fourth letter in about a year's time that he has written to this church, going back and forth in correspondence and answering their questions. But God inspiring these two letters to be kept and preserved for us today so that we might know him. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me into your copy of God's word and stand as we honor God in the reading of his word. And we're going to be looking at at second Corinthians chapter one. And we're going to be looking at four verses eight through eleven. And I want to ask you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible or, or you don't have a Bible that you can understand and read, please uh, feel free to take the Pew Bible in front of you. It's, uh, it's uh, page 1023 is what we're on, but it will also be on the screen in front of us. And this is what the Word of the Lord says, recorded in 2 Corinthians. Paul, the Apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this, We don't want you... To be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength 
so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death. And He will deliver us. We have put our hope in Him that He will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Let's pray. Lord God, we have just read from Your Word. It was inspired by Your Holy Spirit. It was gifted to Your church and it is made known through Your disciples. So help us as we take time to seriously consider what You have gifted us in Your love and Your grace. God, help us to hear from You. Help us to understand a little bit more of Your love. Get a better glimpse of who You are so we may as Your children reflect that image of our loving Father. And thank You that we don't have to do this on our own power, but we are dependent and entrusted with You, the Holy Spirit, who walks with us to help us in these things. It is the name of God, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So one of our great hopes is for, as we talk about this each week, is for people to gain a deeper understanding of Scripture. That's one reason we, we put such a great emphasis on this, on the worship gathering. When, when uh, I am talking with Steph and we're, we're talking and looking at ways to plan and say, okay, this is where the, the Scripture is taking us, so let's plan accordingly. Let's, let's, let's make the, the worship gathering go that direction, not try to distract from it, not try to remove ourselves from it, but to listen and be prepared to hear from God's Word. And we believe that, that when people actually understand the Scripture, that something happens, life change begins to happen. That they don't just look at the Scripture, once again, as, I know I say this a lot, as something that's just an encouraging word to give them warm fuzzies, as not just something that's enlightening, that they feel a little smarter when they leave, or, or not just something that's entertaining, we're like, wow, that was a really clever story. But that it, we see that the Bible was given to us to change our lives. That it, it is God's breath to us, God's inspiration to us to correct and shape us. And the only way that ever happens is when we really say, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? And will I actually follow what God has given us? So like I said, this is written by the, the Apostle Paul, though he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, these, these words. He's writing to the church at Corinth. Once again, this is the, the, probably the fourth letter out of a series, um, but it's the two that we have. And he's writing in response to what happened in 1 Corinthians. Because he's gotten the third letter back and the people have responded. There's been a, an act of repentance. There's been an act of remorse and, and, and a returning to the Lord. Uh, not, a, not a mourning time, but a time of return and revival that's broken out. But things are not perfect Things are not perfect in Corinth. While they had struggled with these divisions and, and difficulties and, and lack of devotion and apathy towards doctrine and, and distraction towards sin, they had returned much to the Lord, but they were still lacking in the understanding of what it meant to be a disciple and to truly minister the way God has created you to minister, to live that out both individually and collectively. As I shared last week, the, the letter of 2 Corinthians, it echoes with about four, four major truths that you're going to see as we go through these, this letter. 
um, they're going to keep bringing up in this, this, these central themes. And that one, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself and has now given to us, the church and disciples, a ministry of reconciliation. And that true ministry is, in Christ's name, it's going to involve both victory and suffering. Suffering and victory. These are inescapable. And that serving Christ means ministering in His name to the various needs, the many needs of people. And lastly, that when it comes to leaders in ministry, those that God has entrusted, they are the ones that are going to need support and trust to those whom they minister. And sometimes it's going to require churches ministering to other churches. We're going to look at these themes as we go through these these central teachings that come back. But today, as we look at this idea and this picture of ministry, this picture of being messengers that are sharing the gospel, sometimes we don't have a lot of confidence in that, right? Because we don't have a lot of confidence in our own ability. Sometimes we just don't speak right. Or we trip over our own words. Or we get so emotionally uh, involved in the moment that we feel like we're unclear, that we're not eloquent. And so our confidence level is dropped. Sometimes our confidence level is overwhelmed because of the darkness of this world. We look and we, we talked about this this morning in our adult life groups, that it just seems like the, the, the darkness is so overwhelming and the choreless is too big, it just paralyzes us in fear. Sometimes our confidence level is so not down because we look at our life and then we compare it to Christ and we see how it does not even match up and we just think, no one would ever listen to me. My life is wrecked and battled and bruised with sin. How could I possibly be effective for the Lord? Sometimes our confidence level is, is knocked down because we've faced rejection. We've, we've tried to be examples and we just get pushed back and pushed back and like, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. And we've just basically began tuning ourselves out and turning ourselves down because we just feel like no one wants to hear the message anyways. What good is it? These are all pieces that we face. And sometimes there are disciples in the world who see the actual darkness. They see the actual threat of death. And it prevents them from following the Lord. Now I would dare say that probably goes beyond any person in this room. It probably does. Now, livelihood, maybe. Might lose my job if I talk about this. That, that, that is a very serious threat. I understand. But as far as death, that's a whole nother ball game. And yet, in the midst of the most strong of obstacles and conflicts, Paul perseveres. Now, now he doesn't do it just blindly. He doesn't do it with rose-colored glasses. But he does make known what is going on here. And so, in this moment, we're going to see what the Scripture reveals to the church on the subject of confidence in Christ that comes from Him in living this out. And one of the the things that the, the Scripture reveals to us is the reality, the reality of affliction. We talked about this last week when we talked about comfort. And obviously there is a need for comfort because there's there's the reality of suffering. There's pain in the world. And Paul, in verse 8, he shares about the reality of his experience with suffering while in Ephesus. Paul did not have great times in Ephesus. He didn't always have the best of circumstances in Ephesus. 
There was this one time in Acts chapter 16 where he is welcomed first into the home of Lydia, him and his counterparts. I want you to know that Paul was never on mission alone. He was the one pretty much that we look back and see his life. But he had always had a crew with him. He had his squad, if you will. And they, these are the people that are lesser known, but they were there. And him and his, his crew, the, the, these missionary endeavors were brought into the home of Lydia. So that's a good thing. They were welcomed. But then they're walking and, and sharing about the gospel in the city and they're mocked and they're taunted by this, this uh, servant girl who had been oppressed and sold into slavery and apparently had a demon that was um, leading her to make a profit for her owners in fortune telling. Now, we don't know if these were actually fortunes that were coming true, but this was a person that had found their life oppressed not only in slavery, but also in servitude to witchcraft. And they're taunted about the gospel and about following Jesus. And Paul, in a moment of Holy Spirit clarity, turns and, and, and commands under the authority of Christ for that demon to leave this girl. To where she's no longer under that slavery to switch witchcraft. And thus no longer of profit to her owners. And then the owners and these people, they raise up and, and they rally against Paul and Silas. And they begin beating them and stripping them naked and dragging them through a city and throwing them into the inner cell of a jail. This is a terrible moment. And they have to stay there overnight. With all their wounds, with all their nakedness, locked up in chains. And here's the thing. We don't honestly know if that's the event that Paul is talking about here. It could have been a whole other moment in Ephesus. But he's sharing about this reality. And he doesn't hide it. He doesn't paint the picture that is so tempting and so profited even this day and age. That if you just follow Christ, every single affliction just goes away. You got a debt, you burn it. You got a pain, you put some oil on it. All these things. And I'm not saying that praying and anointing someone with oil is a bad thing. I'm not saying that asking God to deliver you from debt is a bad thing. But you know what? If all you're saying is name it and claim it, and that's the, the extremity of your full fellowship of Jesus, you're missing a point. Because God does deliver us through afflictions and from afflictions, but it may not happen in the way that we desire it. It may not happen in the way that we seek that outcome. But one of the things that Paul does, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be, I don't want this to be hidden from you. That yeah, it was a struggle. This reality was there. But one of the things I love about the apostle Paul in this moment, He only brings up his suffering in very unique God-led moments. He doesn't build his whole life around that. He doesn't shape his whole life around that. He does talk about it because he wants disciples to know that if you follow the Lord, there is victory, but that is through the times of suffering. But he doesn't make it the centerpiece of this letter. Rather, he's speaking about the God who remains with people, with His people through such affliction. That even in the greatest of threats, God provides grace. There's this reality that we need to deal with if we're going to have confidence in the Lord that that it's not just going to escape us and that we're just going to be totally okay and never have any problems if we follow the Lord. That would be foolish. That would be unbiblical. 
The second detail that is revealed from the Scripture on the subject of confidence is not only the reality of affliction, but it's the response to God during our affliction. It's the response to God. In verse 9, he says, We felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. They, they had had such an affliction that they said our only hope, the only, only response was for us to trust in the Lord. Now, this is the reality we all need to deal with. This is a response we all need to have according to the Scripture, because when we deal, first of all, with the affliction of sin, it's going to require a response. There is no other choice on the matter. There is no other option on the table. That when we deal with the topic of sin and the affliction that comes from sin, we've got to come to the point that the Gospel is the only option. That there is a God who is holy, and He sees the offensiveness of sin, the problem of sin, the fallenness of sin, but yet He is the one who provides a sufficient Savior. The only one who could pay the price. The only option. And He gives us the ability to respond with personal responsibility that changes our eternity. It's an eternally urgent question. And it also shapes our life. It transforms us here today. We need to understand that when it comes to God, a response is required. A responsibility is entrusted to His people. And for the first problem, the greatest problem when it comes to the affliction of sin, that only response is to trusting in the Gospel. It's only that response of trusting in Jesus. Because only... He is mighty to save. But then there's the response of what to do after that. Because while we are removed, while we are saved, if you will, from the penalty of sin, we still deal in a world that suffers from the consequence of sin. We still live in a world where the fallenness of sin is seen. Where we have battles against the... the, the um, the waywardness, the war of the flesh in our own life, these, these things that sin had, had left a residual effect on our life, if you will, we're still going to deal with those. We're still going to deal with the, the ways of the world and, and the fact that the world says this is the way you're supposed to operate and if you're not against, if you're not following that, then you must be wholeheartedly against us. And then we must deal with the works of the devil. Because the Bible Let's just know there is a spiritual enemy there. What do we do in the middle of that? You see, in the middle of that, we must say, God, were it not for you, the sentence of death would be on me. And so if that's how I would be at the moment of, of death being imminent, help me be in the moment where life is full. Help me be in a place where I trust and hope and, and place my obedience in you. An act of willful submission. That is, I'm humble to you. I, I see what you've done and I have no hope but you. In life or death, you are my joy. And that helps us to be confident amidst the conflict no matter the outcome, no matter the magnitude. Because if God says, I will deliver you from the penalty of death itself, I will walk with you through it all. If God is good enough to do that, He has told us through Scripture that He will be with us. And that, that, that confidence, it doesn't put us up here where we just kick around and be like, yeah, can't nothing touch me! Or we start quoting scripture out of place, no weapon formed against me shall prosper! You know, that kind of thing. That's not what it's calling us to do. It's driving us to our knees and saying, God, we have no hope but you. But in you we have great hope. In you we have good. 
In You we have everything. And I will follow You because I know You will not lead us astray. Abraham Lincoln once quoted, says, I have often been driven to my knees in prayer. Why? Because I had nowhere else to go. Here's a man that been entrusted and had the power and authority to lead a nation, the, the commander-in-chief. But he recognized in his own life the only place he could go in the moments of desperation was in prayer. And as Christians, we know that we don't just need to go to God in moments of desperation, although He is there and it is so sweet to have that confidence, but to go to Him in any moment. Now these realities... Of suffering. These are good for us though. You realize that? That we have our confidence in the Lord really shaped and built during the moments of affliction. We really know who is there for us really whenever we go through tough stuff, right? You never notice that? The people who are not really there for us, you know, they, you may not hear from them for a while. They'll be like, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, I could be of any help. And they just kind of, distance themselves away from us. But the true friends are those and says, you know what? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But here's what I do know. I'm not going to leave you. I'm here with you. I will walk with you through that. That's when a person understands who their true friends are. And in the moments of adversity, that's where we get a greater understanding. Like, wow, God, that's who you are? You never left me? What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend that we have. A one who loves us like no other. Who in the moments of adversity says, I am with you. And how would that not drive us to a response to say, God, thank you. I'm so grateful. And I trust you. Even though death may be coming for me, you've got me because death cannot hold me. A third detail revealed from Scripture for our confidence in the Lord is this moment of reversal and this moment of resolution that happens in the life of Paul. In verse 10, it says, He, being God, He's pointing back to the Lord. He's not saying, Hey, look at me. I've gone through pain. Look at me. Woe is me. The reality is there. We all know we go through suffering. But He points back to Jesus. He has delivered us. Us. Not just me. Us. My my whole people that have walked through this with me from such a terrible death. And He will deliver us. In other words, the, the word there is saying He will continue to deliver us. And we have put our hope in Him that He will deliver us again. As we continue living for Him, He is the God who is a deliverer. And even if we face the final enemy of death, there will be another deliverance beyond that that God will take us into eternity with Him. It brings us to this whole topsy-turvy moment, this resolution that when we respond to Jesus, He is the one that turns our world upside down to where He's no longer some peripheral issue on the bottom. He is the highest authority. And we see that He does mighty works and He gives good and perfect gifts. You ever had a moment where your opinion about someone changed almost in an instant? Maybe you had heard something about this person. You didn't really know. But something about their life, some moment in time, it turns your world upside down, your perspective about that person. All of a sudden you're like, you know, I had heard about this, but I don't think that person's that way. 
I've seen different things. Or maybe they used to be this way, but something has changed. There's been a U-turn. There's been a, a shift. That is something I can't put my finger on. But it's not what I expected. You see, we know this to be something we see in our lives with people in our families, friendships, neighbors, co-workers. Something may have altered what we thought about them and, and, and all of a sudden our opinion has changed. How much more so when we see what God does to turn all the tide of everything that was going against us, everything that was there, the slavery of sin, the penalty of death, the fruitlessness of our life. And yes, I know that sounds really harsh. To say without Christ, our life is fruitless. But the Bible has said in John fifteen ten that I am the vine and you are the branches. If anyone abides in me, he will produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Even what you produce is fruitless. Aside from Jesus. But He turns the world upside down. And then He sends us out into the world to help turn it upside down. This is the whole thing that you see throughout the book of Acts. It's a testimony of the Holy Spirit's work in the church turning the world upside down. Sometimes they even use that phrase. These are the men who've turned the world upside down. And I want to know this. If you know that Jesus has turned your world upside down and you've seen that power in your life demonstrated by His goodness, this is, I turned away the penalty of death. I've walked with you through the days of conflict. I have fixed your foundation on Me. If we know that He's done this inside of us and within us, is that evidenced in the world around us by the life we're living? Is there such a response and resolution and reversal in our life that people are saying, God has turned that life upside down. And it's a good thing. And because I'm seeing that it's turning my life upside down, I'm beginning to question what I once held. I'm beginning to be convicted of what I once thought of. And I'm seeing with clarity what God does to demonstrate His grace in the life. This is what Paul's testifying says, we believe that God can deliver us from anything. That He reverses the trajectory we're on. And lastly, what's revealed from Scripture in this moment is that when we have confidence in the Lord, that we don't skimp away from the reality of affliction. We know it's going to happen. How it's going to happen, we don't know, but we know it's going to happen. But when we see what God has done and, and our response to Him when we see that God is able to do immeasurably more than those things that we possibly ask or imagine, there becomes this moment of revival in our life that we begin to experience and see the facts of what God has said being true. That it's not just mere theory and speculation, as William Barclay would say, that, that the confidence in the Christian in God is not some theory that we just kind of put it as an abstract idea, but it's something that we, we experience and we walk through with Him. What Paul says is, as he's writing to the church at Corinth from Ephesus, some a thousand miles away, he says this in verse 11, it says, 
that after we put our hope in Him, that He will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. That you are involved in this process because your trust is being built in the Lord and you're going to Him in prayer. And now many are giving thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. That, that, that we've experienced a revival and now you're experiencing a revival. Now you're praying and we're praying and other people are affected by this prayer work because God is magnified when His people trust and delight in Him and live for His glory. Stuff happens. And the world is all of a sudden not the same as it was. This moment of deep and painful affliction that came to Paul that felt to him as though the sentence of death had come as if it was right on the other side of the door was overcome by a God who says you can trust in me. But whenever we trust in Him, God does something among His people. And other lives are affected. Paul talking about this, he says, many other people um, will give thanks on our behalf because one day I'm coming back to you, Corinth. We're working on this mission towards taking an endeavor to help the church and help the lost in Jerusalem that are going through a famine. We're going to do that together. And there's going to be people whose lives are changed because you are trusting in the Lord, because you are obedient in the Lord, because your confidence is in the Lord. You realize that even though you face this reality, there is a response that you say, I can fall prey to allowing myself to be overcome by this affliction and not placing my hope and confidence in the Lord, trying to do my own thing my own way and trying to rescue myself like, you know, doggy paddling against the rapid river. Or I can trust in Him and God will bring about the resolution, the reversal in His time and His way. And when that happens, I can celebrate, others can celebrate, and lives will be changed because God never fails on who He is, on what He says, and what He has promised to do. He didn't fail with sending us Jesus. He didn't fail with sending us the Holy Spirit. He hasn't failed in the last 2,000 years. And as long as He tarries, He hasn't failed in what He's calling us to do. Let us have our confidence in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to this moment of response, a moment the Bible clearly paints the matter of choice and delighting in You and obeying You and trusting in You, God, I pray that we will not miss it. We will not miss the moment of faith, of following And that, God, you would help us have our confidence in you, renewed, restored, reawakened, reengaged. Or for some, a first-time response and saying, I must trust in the Lord. Whatever it is, God, help us to be obedient in this moment as we recognize who you are, how good you are, and how glorious your power is to make what you have said happen. In Jesus' name, amen.